0: Welcome to Disciple City Church Podcast. My name is Jerry Wagner, founder and lead pastor of Disciple City Church in Dallas, Texas. Thank you so much for tuning in to our podcast. Our desire is to unleash healthy disciple makers in West Dallas to reach the world. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can listen to new messages each week. Thank you and have a God-filled day. The other day, I mean, I think it was just last week, I was at a Bible study, and uh, I was with uh, my friend Chandler, who's actually running the cameras. His wife uh, uh, is also running the cameras. I think Mac is back there running the cameras. So much thanks to them for running cameras uh, in this new season of our church. But uh, I was at a at a Bible study with Chandler, and uh, he was recently telling me that he bought a new alarm system for his brand new house that I, I really... Uh, is really sharp. It's really great, and uh, the the house that is. And, and then he asked me what I thought of the alarm system because I actually own the same alarm system uh, in my house and uh, in my 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 home. But uh, so for the next few minutes, I began to explain and tell him everything that's wrong with the alarm system <clears throat> that he had just bought. Uh, so after about two or three minutes. Uh, To what should have been about a 30-second answer, uh, I realized that we were now late to the Bible study um, as everyone listened to me rant about my alarm system and how supposedly terrible it was. Uh, So pausing and and realizing what I was doing, I I tried to give a few last-minute efforts of giving some sort of positive review uh, that was hard to believe for him probably at this point uh, about this alarm system. Uh, And, and, you know, we we got started, and and I kind of had to pause because everything negative I was saying about it really wasn't my experience because it's been a decent alarm system. But the only way I could perceive it was negatively. Uh, friends and family can testify that if you ask me how my day is going, usually I'll tell you what's wrong with it. Uh, usually I see the, the only the negative end of things typically if I look back on a past event or experience. Uh, especially if you ask me how something was in the past, if it was a relationship or if it was a friendship or if it was a you know, college experience, whatever it may be, I, I just tend to see it in a negative light. And what someone says is a negative Nancy for me, and sorry to all the Nancys out there, uh, or, or a real lack of gratitude, which I agree with that too, or maybe it's just my Enneagram as a six, you know, shout out to all the loyalists out there. Uh, the psychological community will probably just say that I have a cognitive distortion about reality, that is that I push out all the positive and only see the negative. Uh, I picked up this, this term, this psychological term, from a, a really great class we provide at our church called Holistic Wellness. And uh, cognitive distortion is just one of uh, a, a, of a way of classifying different types of thoughts that we have um, whenever we only, uh, where, where we use these negative experiences, or it may be a, a term called mind filtering, where you only see the the positive, or you only see the negative in a certain situation. And there's a few different types of cognitive distortions. Uh, mind filtering is the one that I struggle with a lot. Uh, another one you may know well is cast- catastrophizing. So uh, the other day, I literally got in my car with my sons, and we had just baked some bread, or my wife did. And uh, she had left to go on a coffee coffee date with a friend of hers. And uh, I, I actually got in the car. I was driving my friends, or with my, my friends. They are my children, you know. That's, you know, COVID. Uh, So we're driving away from the house and I start panicking like, I left the oven on. Surely I left the oven on. But I knew that I'd seen that the oven was off And I was just like, you know, I I just can't handle it. I I picture there only being my house on fire when I come back. I just couldn't handle it anymore. And so catastrophizing is another cognitive distortion you may have. Or magical thinking where you say, you know, I'm a good person, so nothing bad should happen to me. And, And these distortions shape the way a person views reality and experiences it. They view reality differently because of the way that we perceive reality. But they can actually be really harmful if we let them get in our way. These distortions and irrational thoughts can take over the way that we experience other people, the way that we view past events, the way that we see our life and where it's going to go. And uh, similarly, I think that followers of Jesus are tempted to believe and live out what I want to call today kingdom distortions. We have cognitive distortions, but we also have kingdom distortions. To distort something is to shape or, or mold something out of shape, to pull or twist it out of its original shape. And kingdom distortions are false beliefs about the kingdom of God, and they shape how we view the kingdom of God and how we experience the kingdom of God. So much of what I think, uh, uh, what we're experiencing today in America is in light of these opposing distortions about what the kingdom of God should or shouldn't be. So much of our emotions regarding the election cycle, and now what I would call the, the hangover of it all, everyone's kind of dealing with it differently, is, is because of these competing, kingdom distortions. And so what we've embarked upon last week, starting with Ryan's sermon, uh, is really just trying to provide a a short series to remind uh, me, remind our staff, remind our body, remind those who are listening what it means to view the kingdom of God and how we experience it. Last week, Ryan used the book of Isaiah, if you tuned in, to tell us about the hope of the kingdom of God. The, the vision, where this is all headed, where we should put our bets on the future so that we can have peace in the present chaos. The kingdom of God is simply the reign of God. And, and the vision of the kingdom of God is where God's reign is fully saturating the earth, where God's reign is fully saturating the earth. One day, it's not going to be just something we understand, where God reigns over everything, but it's something we experience, where God's reign is present everywhere. This week, we're going to look at what the kingdom of God looks like in real time today. We're asking where does it originate because we understand to originate from God in Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. Our question today focuses on how does this longing for new creation, this kingdom, take form form and shape in our reality today? Really, we're zeroing in. How does God's people labor for the kingdom of God today? How do we walk away and labor for the kingdom of God now? And it's a huge argument and it's a huge issue right now, not just with Christians, but with everyone. Does this this longing for something, this compass in our hearts where we long for some new reality, is it through a policy or is it a president? Has the kingdom suffered a huge blow because someone was or wasn't elected? How does it take shape in the here and the now? I mean, I'm staying off social media right now. I'm sure the rest of you are experiencing anxiety. I got enough without social media. And so I'm sure you see it where everyone's contending against each other as to what it should really look like. How does it shape the here and now in a movement or an activist, an influencer or a nonprofit? Is it through words, deeds or both? What's the sort of intent we're supposed to walk away with and how should we go about spreading it? Kingdom distortions are prevalent and take the form of many shape. And so it's important for us to have a scripture-informed plan when we go back into the real world. And so what's not up for grabs is this reality that we all long, whether you believe in God or not, that we all long for this sort of reality. We all hope and desire for something. Whether, Whether you're going to call it something like a utopia or you call it the kingdom of God itself, we all long for a reality where there's something new. Right. Consider this: this this hope of something new. Uh, there was a Politico survey right before the election that they polled different Americans what they thought about uh, the upcoming election, and they asked them their opinion that would violence justify? Uh, would they justify violence as a means to attain uh, to attain their political party's agenda? And one in three Americans said yes. One in three Americans said yes. Violence is justified to be able to. It, it could be justified to do. Our agenda Now, surely some of the people that were, that were polled were probably at least culturally Christian to understand that this agenda is so worth it, that violence would be something we could partake in. Whether you're, you're looking for the good life or the American life or utopia or the kingdom of God, there's something in us that we think that we had to work it out. And so having worked in ministry for some time, now you, you see these other distortions where people walk away from the church young or old believers, to do kingdom work. Is that how Jesus wants us to do it? To walk away from his bride, to be able to do kingdom work? Is that the way we do the kingdom? And so for the church, it's really important for us to consider how we, as the church of God, labor for the kingdom of God here on earth in our time. And so to map out an understanding today, we're gonna look at Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church. And what we'll see today is that in dealing with kingdom distortions that happen within the body of believers in Corinth, Paul is going to give us an answer that we can hold on today and how it plays out in our reality now. Their distortions may be different in kind, but the answer is, very, is the very same for us today. He informs his audience and the reader that this kingdom, this kingdom vision is labored for by his church. And, is, and, and this is amidst plenty of distortions you can choose from. We'll see that today the vision of the kingdom of God, or as Paul will call it today, new creation is brought about in the individual and collection of individuals called the church. And there's a certain manner to work it out as well. What we'll see today, there's a certain manner of working out this vision in our real lives. To labor for kingdom come, as we're calling our series. What we'll conclude today is that as his church, we're to co-labor with Christ through the ministry of the kingdom with the motivation of our king. Co-labor with Christ through the ministry of the kingdom with the motivation of our king. And so our text today is going to tease this out, really unpack what it means to be collaborating with Christ in such a way. But let's not take just my word for it. If you will, if you got your app or you're looking on the screen or you, got your, you actually got a real thing, the real Bible, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Chapter 5, verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. While you turn there, just give you some context what we're looking at. As I mentioned earlier, Paul is in the middle of actually correcting this Corinthian church for their distortions that they've fought into themselves. In both letters that bear that community's name, he's constantly dealing with distortions, with sinfulness. And in the letter that we're parachuting into, Paul is having to correct the Corinthian church for beginning to follow a group, uh, follow a group of, uh, of certain leaders that have infiltrated their body that Paul comically calls the super apostles. That's not something you want to put on your name title. That's, that's not something you want to add to your resume. The super apostles, it, he, he's making fun of them when he says that. These leaders have led members in the Corinthian church astray into kingdom distortions. And these super apostles claimed that they were better than Paul and his associates. Uh, They even brought letters of recommendation from past satisfied clients to prove that they were basically trustworthy and and they should be trusted in the Corinthian community. Uh, They they were better speakers than Paul. They were flashier uh, performers than Paul. And, and, And what we see today is that they had far more credentials and far more achievements to commend them. And they argued that there's no way and no reason you should follow Paul. And there's no way or no reason that Paul is the type of guy you want to follow if you're trying to do the kingdom work. They say to the effect, look at Paul and all of his suffering. Look at his poor speech uh, 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 performance and how much money this guy actually has. How can he actually have a life marked by the kingdom of God? How could you follow that guy? And so where we land today is, is Paul is in the middle of highlighting this Corinthian community's distortions, a trust in outward appearances as a sign of kingdom agenda and authority. And this distortion is in our society as well, as we know well. And the answer is very similar in the manner in which they were supposed to now go about laboring for the kingdom of God. So let's read it together. If you're in chapter 5, verse 11, in 2 Corinthians, it says this, "'Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, But but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience.'" We are not committing ourselves to you again but giving you cause to boast about us so that what you may be able so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart for if we are beside ourselves it is for God if we are in our right mind it is for you for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him but for him who for their sake died and was raised from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if was in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you and a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is a day of salvation. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, I, I really do believe that your scripture is enough today. That better than what we may sit through and meet uh, jabbering on for the next hopefully not too long, that your scripture is enough to correct, to rebuke, to change us without added words. So I'm pleading for your Holy Spirit to use this text in my heart and our heart today to mold us, to change us, to understand how to co-labor with you in this world as your church. For your Holy Spirit to work upon us in, in the meager words I may give about this text, to give application to this text, that you would, through your Holy Spirit, mold in us a more uh, like image of Jesus in our body and our, all of our, our, our family here. And so we're pleading for you, Holy Spirit, to do something that really I can't do today. And so I, I pray that you would do that. So that we, one, we don't waste our time. That God, your spirit would honor the work and the, and the sacrifice of Jesus. And that you would honor the name of your son, Jesus, and that we would leave here uh, edified to love, to serve, and to co-labor with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I believe from this text that we find that Paul lays out that God's church is to co-labor with Christ through the ministry of the kingdom with the motivation of our king. Now, this text is longer It's pretty long, and our conclusion is is pretty weighty, so I do want to break it down through three components today, looking at this, the motivation, the ministers, and the ministry. The motivation, the ministers, and the ministry. Looking first at the motivation, the motivation of our king. Paul, in his answer to their distortion in their community, communicates that his His motivation in this kingdom work is different than the super apostles. Look at verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Stop. Paul is saying that his motivation here, knowing the the fear of the Lord is what he works from. If you look at verse 10, just right before this, he has concluded and said that everyone will stand before the judgment throne of Jesus to give an account of what they've done in their life. To give an account, including believers, will give an account for what they've done in their body. And so this motivates Paul. Working with this knowledge, he's living in light of that reality. He is doing what he does because he will have to give an account to the king of the kingdom. These super apostles aren't living like that. They aren't looking down the line of eternity. They aren't living with eternity in mind, knowing that their king will call them to account for how they're composing themselves in that community. If they did, they live differently. Despite their preaching and despite their work in the church and supposedly for the kingdom, Paul says they aren't living to please God. Uh, Don't we remember the story from Jesus where he says, there will be many who say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do X, Y, Z for you? And he'll say, depart. I don't know you. I do not know you, you workers of unrighteousness. These super apostles have done everything in their power to please the Corinthians and snag a gig. Paul says just earlier in chapter five, verse nine, that he and his associates make it his aim. Their aim to please God, it's their bullseye. Their target is to please their king. These super apostles, and consequently, the Corinthians aren't doing this. They're living for themselves. They're pleasing themselves. The opposite of what Paul says those who are in Christ should be doing. Paul's motivation in the kingdom work that he's doing is to please the king. It's not just to do kingdom work. It's not just to do the things that we think are right. Is to please the king. So we have to ask why. Why would he want to please this king? Why would he want to live in such reverence of such a king? Verse 14 says this. For the love of Christ controls us. Paul makes it clear that his motivation comes from a love of God. It's not his love for God. It's God's love for him that controls him. The phrase the love of Christ controls us as community that God's love directs his actions. It, it makes his agenda. It plans out his life. It motivates his work and shows the next step of action, the next course of action in kingdom work. And this love of God was shown in the death of Jesus. Verse 14 goes on to say, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake was died and raised. The love of Jesus motivated uh, Paul's kingdom worth and the death of Jesus and the, the consequences those who follow him have died with him. Paul has died with Jesus. We who follow Jesus, our lives, our old lives, our old values, our old priorities have died in order to now live with our king. In dying with Jesus, all that's flashy and all that glitters, all that's an outward appearance has died. Everything that the Corinthians are valuing, everything that they're, they're contra- uh, comparing and contrasting, Paul and the super apostles right now, has died. The serving of self has died with Christ. All in Christ have died with Jesus. Paul no longer wants to or has to please other people. He's motivated to please the one who loves him, not to be loved by others. And and our proposition said today that we collaborate through the ministry of the kingdom. And, And part of the ministry of the kingdom comes the ministers. So let's look at the ministers of this ministry. Look at verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Those that perform a ministry are ministers, Paul describes those in Jesus as those ministers. Those who follow him are those ministers. Those in his church are his ministers of the ministry. It's not just one of the greatest disservices we've done is separating lay and clergy and and making pastors and then people who go to church. But what he's saying is everyone is a minister of reconciliation. A minister is someone who conducts a certain ministry. A minister is also someone who represents an authority. As Paul says in verse 20, an ambassador of God. And these ministers, according to the passage, are of a certain sort when it comes to the kingdom of God. As we said earlier, the reign of God will be manifested in new creation. The reign of God will saturate all of reality one day. And we, those who follow him, are new creation ourselves. We are a, uh, not simply just a signpost that points to the future, but we are the reality uh, of the future coming into now. We are actually new creation now. Look at verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once record, regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The super apostles and the Corinthians were viewing the kingdom of God as manifested in fleshly terms alone. They assumed success and honor were signs of authority and agenda. But Paul here says that he and his, and most everyone else did, uh, to, to look at things that way is why Jesus was killed. Jesus was looked at through a fleshy manner, and they said, he's a chump. He's ruining everything. And that's why Paul would go on to actually persecute the churches because he was preventing the blessing of God on the people of God because they regarded him according to the flesh. This language of new creation is actually from Isaiah 43, where God says in verse 18, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. New creation refers to that future kingdom that comes into reality. New creation is referring to this future promise that Ryan talked about last week where God is going to bring about new heavens and new earth as the book of revelation says. And what Paul is saying here is that if anyone, anyone, everyone in Jesus is new creation in real time. Anyone who follows Jesus as Lord and has repented of their sins is not simply a new person but the first taste of God's kingdom bursting into reality. The ministers of the ministry are a new creation themselves. They are evidence of God's kingdom coming and spreading of God's reign, we are the ones God has chosen to begin his new creation project in. And as we learn across scriptures, these new creations, his church, his ministers give a preview to what's to come through their behavior and their character and their actions. These super apostles thought their outward image pointed to uh, some sort of successful life in God. Paul says here the inward reality of a Christian is the good life itself, a present reality and taste of what's to come. And so Paul says, the old way of living for oneself has passed. Behold, live according to the new that you've been made into. Finally, let's look at the ministry of the kingdom. Now that we have identified who ministers in the ministry, we need to look at the ministry itself. We see this starting in verse 18, that God has given to these new creations, to Paul and his associates, the ministry of reconciliation. This is the ministry of the kingdom of God, the ministry of reconciliation, bringing a relationship back into harmony. Paul is acting out of this ministry right here and now that we're reading about. He is attempting to reconcile with this community that's broken his relationship with them. He wants their trust and confidence again since he planted that community. He even says in chapter six that his heart is open to the Corinthians and then says, your heart is the one that's closed. And in fact, he says, your affections are close to us, kind of playing on this idea of your desires for your own self has overcome your desire for me. To reconcile with him, he's urging them first to be reconciled with God. There are believers and perhaps fake believers in their presence that need to be reconciled with God and with Paul. It's not just beef with Paul he's saying, he's saying it's beef with God as well that they have. This is a marker of the ministry, a healing of relationships for unity and for common use together, it, 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 a common cause together within the church. If you remember what John, uh, Jesus says in John chapter 17, he gives the primary evangelism tool. Do you know what it is? Unity. John chapter 17, he says, through the unity of the believers, people will come to believe that I'm the son of God and that he sent me. And so Paul is laboring to reconcile with them by pointing them first to reconcile with God. Key to both reconciling within the church and reconciling with God himself is the ministry marked by the message. You see this in our text today, that the ministry is marked by a message. He said that God reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusted the message of reconciliation to them. This ministry of reconciliation, this ministry of new new creation of the kingdom of God is marked by a message. His ministry is marked by the message, the message of reconciliation, the message of the kingdom of God. Now this is a gut check because the the Corinthians are leaning into the super apostles' ability to talk. They jabber on, tickling the ear of the Corinthian church and Paul is saying, I'm sticking to the message. I'm sticking to the simple gospel. As parts of this verse six says, he isn't trying to put obstacles. uh, If you were to look at chapter six, I'm sorry. He's not trying to put obstacles in the way of them believing God. His ministry is marked by the message. That's what he clings to. He says, we implore you, church, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It's not a good thing when you come to the pulpit and you say, hey, church, you need to be reconciled with God. He's trying to wake them up. This is Paul sticking to his message. He isn't trying to woo them over, plead with them, please come back, please come. In the sense, he's giving them the gospel. He's giving them the gospel. And the message is laid out in Verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Consider this. For our sake, he made him. For our sake, for humanity, for your sake. If you've ever doubted if the gospel was really for you, it's for you. For your sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel is really for you. It's for me. Paul says here that in the death of Jesus, God punished Jesus for our sins. He suffered under the death penalty and wrath of God for the sins of humanity so that the resurrection of Jesus might give us righteousness, the righteousness of God. That's a right relationship with God as though we lived like Jesus. Now God has placed on us the clothes of righteousness. We are forgiven our sins, clothed with righteousness for all who believe no matter the past, All can be clothed in this righteousness and made into new creation. They no longer bear the guilt. They no longer bear the shame. The punishment of sin is no longer for them. And that's the message that Paul is communicating. That all who have chosen to repent of their sins and claim allegiance to Jesus now have that righteousness upon them. Now, similar to what the Corinthian church is doing today, where where we see uh, in the text today, I think the American church struggles with distortions too. I think I struggle with a lot of these distortions too when we consider the kingdom of God. And using these three components, I just want us to consider what these distortions might be. A distortion of motivation, a distortion of the minister, and a distortion of the ministry. Consider this. First, a distortion of motivation. Paul's ministry was marked by reverence to Jesus who loved him unto death. This same Jesus was to hold Paul accountable for his life in the body. And he'll hold us accountable too. And I think the weight of Jesus's love and his authority moved his life. And I think that in myself, so I'm not picking on any of us without including me, is that we lack reverence for the sacred. Reverence for the Jesus who loved us. Because often we want to treat him as a friend and a deliverer, but not as a king. We want to treat him as a friend, but not a king or a judge. Like, wherever I've been preparing for this message, it's made me really nervous because I'm going to be held accountable for the words today that I actually act on them. God's going to hold me accountable for this message and he holds you accountable for hearing this message. Turn it off real quick, right? If you don't want to be held accountable anymore for anything else that you hear because Jesus holds us accountable for our bodies, for what we do in this life. Does the Bible still do that for you? Does the knowledge that he expects a return of what he gives produce action within you? And it's not to make him scary to us, it's to understand his superiority to us. It's not to make us terrified of approaching him, but reverence and humility. In this kingdom work on earth, when we're working out what we believe the kingdom of God would look like in our spheres and influences, in our nation, in our cities, our towns, everything else, are we working from a motivation of reverence for his love and authority? Do we revere Christ enough to do the work we're called to do? Does his majesty and love move you to act, not just complain? I think of the parable where Jesus told, uh, where, where the master gives uh, certain talents to three different servants. And he gives different amounts to each one of them. And two of them use those talents to make more. They double or triple or depending on what, whichever one we're looking at, they double it. But one doesn't, one just buries it. He says, you're a mean master. I didn't trust you really. I just put it in the ground. I didn't do anything with it. And I, and, I think, and I think not wrongly. I don't think it's wrong for us to immediately view these as our gifts. Because I think they are our gifts. Like the things that we're good at. God's given us certain gifts to use these talents and skills. And so we say, you know, you use your gifts. Use your talents. Make sure you use them. I think another right interpretation of this is when we consider how much God has given us, especially in the American church, to hear the word, to hear the Bible, to have the Bible in our language, to have thousands and thousands and thousands of Bible studies, to have gone through so many services and and so many Bible studies, that he's going to hold us accountable for that. He wants a return for the things that he gives. While some are starving in the world just to have a Bible in their own language, we're what one fa- uh, pastor calls like foodies in the Christianity faith here in, uh, in America. We're like foodies. We're just like, I like this one and I like that one. You know, I don't really like that teaching. You know, this one's nice and I subscribe to this or that. And we pick and choose what we want to obey, but we're storing up and just getting, just getting obese with these words that we don't actually do any energy or any action with. We're foodies whenever it comes to this sort of stuff, devouring the word of God, but doing nothing with it. And in kingdom work, our motivation is our king, the one who loves us and the one who holds us accountable. And he's incredible. It's, it's not this political identity we're motivated by. It's not this agenda that we're moved by. It's not this uh, economic stash we could achieve that we're moved by. And it's not a career that we're moved by to do the work of the kingdom. Right? Some of us just throw the spice of a, a kingdom flavor on our careers and just try to make it look flashy. Instead of letting the kingdom interpret what our careers should be. What should our careers be? Where should we live? How should we spend our money? How should we spend our time? Is it dedicated with reverence to the king? And it's not to make you afraid. It's to make you uncomfortable. Placing everything at the feet of Jesus is uncomfortable because we have to let go. We're motivated by a king who loves us who wants good for us, the good life. He wants the good life for us, according to his terms, to live differently and sacrifice differently. And we're compelled by that love to live in reverence to him. And the other distortion that I think we have to turn away from is the distortion of the ministers, talking about us, the individual and collective church. Too often, our ministers mirror old creation creation instead of looking like new creation. Too often, our ministers mirror old creation instead of looking like the new. We understand that we're the new creation, but we're kind of surprised when we run into flashpoints where this new creation lifestyle clashes with the old creation we live in. And so we begin looking more like old creation than we really do the new creation. But we should expect to be a difference when we as to how we look in this world how we're perceived and how the world looks and lives compared to us uh, a quote that I heard earlier this year that I've given to our staff and kind of was hoping to charge us up for the fall was the greatest gift we can give our community give our church is our holiness the greatest gift we can give our church and our community is our holiness there's headline after headline of pastors and staff and churches that fail because they aren't walking with integrity and holiness. The greatest gift all of us as ministers of God that we can give our neighbors, that we can give to our friends who don't know Jesus, to our family within the body is our holiness. And it's true for all of us that the greatest gift we can't give is not just pastor Jerry, you need to be holy. Or Michael, you Come on, get it together. You should be holy. It's all of us, all of our holiness, all of our purity matters, where there's purity in the middle of a perverted culture or joy in the middle of an anxious culture. And part of why the Corinthians didn't think Paul could be legit was because they looked at his life and it didn't seem successful according to old creation. He seemed to suffer constantly, but they didn't see what Paul saw out. They didn't affirm him as a true apostle because of the values that they were measuring him by. If you look later in chapter six, I think it's verse four, he says this, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves. So he's saying, I, I present you to myself to be affirmed and, and, and to be accepted. We commend ourselves in every way. And here's the ways he affirms his true allegiance to Jesus. By great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots. Like Riots, riots labors, sleepless nights, hunger by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech and power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, which is just cold, well, just for the right hand and the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true. We are are uh, as unknown and yet well-known as dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. This is what new creation looks like in old creation, purity and persecution, purity and persecution, sanctification in the middle of suffering. Look at the weapons he carries in the battle of life, righteousness in the right, righteousness in the left. That's how he does war. That's how he does kingdom work. That's crazy. That's crazy. Do we think of it that way? We're like, let's get a new model. Let's get a new agenda for the church. Let's, let's put this new uh, fad into the church, see if we can do kingdom work. He's saying, by righteousness, I'm doing the work. By living holy, I'm doing the work. By purity, I'm doing the work. When we choose to be new creation, you will run against the grain of old creation. We will contrast to the world in our kingdom efforts and agenda. The final distinction or distortion I I, I wanna discuss is the distortion of the ministry. The distortion of the ministry. And that is the distortion of a ministry without the message. A ministry without the message. Isn't it true that right now, so many of us in the church are so accustomed to ministry without message? The message of reconciliation. Like we do kingdom acts, but lack the message of reconciliation. Uh, Rightfully, we put money towards feeding the poor. Rightfully, uh, we we do actions to serve the press. Rightfully, we speak truth to power and and stand for those who are treated unjustly, but ultimately lack the message of reconciliation that says that in Christ, God didn't count the sins of the world against them and reconcile them through the death of his son. And so to escape the pressure of actually using our words and our actions for the kingdom, we give ourselves an out. But it's evident in huge areas of our lives that words really do matter. We downplay the power of words when it comes to the gospel. They're like, through my deeds, I'll show the gospel. They'll understand the gospel. And we give ourselves an out. But we believe in the power of words in so many other places. Look at social media posts, look at protests, the signs, the chants speaking truth to power. We believe in the words that they have power. Look at what the concept of fake news has done to our society, that words have power to shape. Or consider how the words of a parent harmed you or how a coach or a speaker or a teacher spoke life into you through just one kind word. Words have massive power, but we tend to slip out the back door when it comes to the gospel. Paul makes it clear here that the ministry of reconciliation has to be marked by the message of reconciliation. That the work of the kingdom is the work of the kingdom because the message of the kingdom is there. The ministry of the kingdom requires the message. And we'd be foolish to try to reconcile things in this world, whether between people in the church, or whether to make things look more like the kingdom of heaven, if we didn't actually give the message of the kingdom of heaven to others. Paul says it really clearly that how will anyone believe if no one tells them? How will anyone believe if no one tells them? I think a huge pivot our church has to make, and this is for me too, and I haven't done a good job of this, is there are people who still don't know who Jesus is. There's still people in this world that don't know who Jesus is. Around the world, there's still people that don't have Bible translations. Maybe God's calling you to be a Bible translator. So that someone can read the Bible. In their, you have an app that has hundreds of translations. Think about the fact that some people have no translation of the Bible. Some people who have never heard the name Jesus before. And we want to do these works. And I, I want to do the work. I want to see West Side Dallas look more like the kingdom of God. I honestly do. But I am so tempted to do it without the message of reconciliation because it's just easier. It's easier to look like we're kind of joining with the world in this utopia work where we're trying to make everything more equitable, and I believe in that, without ever telling them about who Jesus is. And there's still people who don't know. There's still people who don't know. And I think we give ourselves an out, like, you know, well, most of our society has heard about Jesus, so we shouldn't just, you know, like probably assume that most people have already heard in Dallas, And we should not be doing the ministry of the kingdom unless it's marked by the message of the kingdom. In conclusion, Paul says in chapter six, verse one, that we work together with Christ, which is just a mind-blowing idea, that what you do when you wake up tomorrow is work with Christ. (laughs) As Christians, it's utterly important that we co-labor with him through the ministry he's given with the motivation he's given. Maybe you don't know Jesus. I don't know if it's someone in here or someone watching online. Maybe you don't know Jesus. I can imagine that you're tired. I'm tired of my sin and I follow Jesus. But you're tired of the sin that you've heaped up in your life. Today, what the scriptures say is that you can be reconciled to God. Today, everything of your past can be forgiven. And for us, for us who follow Jesus, we really have to ask these three questions. Is your motivation marked by reverence? Is your motivation marked by reverence, both for his authority and for his love? Secondly, do you minister as new creation or do you look more like the old? Can they tell a difference? It's like a cheesy thing you probably got on a VBS shirt or some old Sunday school lesson you heard. But honestly, I think we've tried so hard to look like the world to be relevant that there's no message anymore. Do you minister as new creation or look like the old? And then finally, is your ministry marked by the message? The greatest challenge I think we have to walk away with. If you really want to see the work done, Does it consist of the message? Because otherwise it can look like anything else. Thank you again for listening to Disciple City Church Podcast. Until we meet again, shalom.